by the book podcast with me, Susie Chase. I'm Laura McLively, and my new cookbook is the Berkeley Bowl Cookbook. Epicurious just named the Berkeley Bowl Cookbook one of the it cookbooks for spring 2018. Tell us about Berkeley Bowl and the owners. So Berkeley Bowl is a family-run market. They, uh, Glenn and Diane Yasuda are the owners, and they opened up shop in a former bowling alley back in 1977. So a lot of people think that the store is called Berkeley Bowl because of, of the bowl alluding to some sort of edible culinary adventure, but it's actually named after the, the bowling alley. Um, and so they opened up shop there back in 1977 because they used to live behind that location. And Glenn and Diane spent some time living in Japan, and that arrangement really reminded them of how shops were set up there in Japan where people had their storefront and they lived behind it. And so they bought the property, turned it into a grocery store that was mainly produce, and from there it evolved into what is now 40 years later a very big grocery store with over 600 employees. I found it really interesting that local farmers asked Berkeley Bull what they should plant. Yeah, I did too. I I think that that's the unique um, aspect of, of Berkeley Bull in that because it's still a family-run market, they're able to work directly with farmers and local growers to source and ask them to produce items that they want to have in their grocery store that large grocery franchises can't really do that because they have to um, provide such huge quantities and take them to a centralized warehouse and distribute them to all the locations. They can't really work with a small farmer to produce some niche item. Um, and so it's a really nice arrangement because in that way, Berkeley Bowl can ask a small farm to produce, for instance, Buddha's hand, um, knowing that they have a huge customer base that wants that item. And then the small farmer has a guaranteed market for that item. They're not taking that huge risk of growing something that's maybe um, a little bit wacky or unknown to most people and risking no one buying it. The LA Times has called Berkeley Bull one of the nation's most renowned retailers of exotic fruits and vegetables. Describe the first time you saw an African horned melon at Berkeley Bull and what is it? So that's a great question. Um, if you have my book, it's right on the cover because it's such a unique item. It's on the back side and it's a neon orange orb that is covered in darker orange spikes. And when you cut into it, it literally oozes this lime green juice and all these seeds. And um, it seriously looks like some sort of spiky hand grenade or a weapon from outer space. And in fact, it um, the first time I saw it was featured on a Star Trek episode where aliens in outer space are eating this fruit. And... Um, it's actually an African horned melon. It's not something that they CGI'd or created for the show. So I think it's really interesting that it <laughs> That's funny. that alien that it's on Star Trek. But um, my first time seeing it in the store was I, I had moved here from, from Sonoma County. I moved to Berkeley to go to college and I had heard of Berkeley Bowl and I immediately went there because I, I wanted to check it out for myself. And I was, of course, struck by the variety they had, even though I'd heard about it. Um, 
I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. They had so many amazing fruits and vegetables that I'd never seen before. And I think by far the most extreme one is African horned melon. And so I, you know, I picked it up. I looked at it. There happened to be one that was cut in half and I smelled it and it just, it was kind of intoxicating. It smelled like lime and banana and melon, cucumber all mixed together. But, um, something, something in me didn't feel like I could take it home and eat it. Like it was almost like all these unusual fruits and vegetables that weren't part of my culture. I almost felt like I didn't have permission to take them home and cook with them. Like they weren't mine. And it wasn't until years later after an experience of living in Spain and having a cooking club there where we were basically just challenging ourselves each week to cook with something we'd never cooked with before. It wasn't until coming back from there that I, I was really yearning to continue that spirit of adventurous cooking that when I went back to Berkeley Bowl for the first time and I saw these fruits and vegetables in that new context, I was like, well, hey, why don't I, why aren't I doing this now? Why don't I continue that spirit of adventurous cooking from my own home? And so that's when I picked it up, brought it home and played around with it and had so much fun developing a recipe for it that I decided to start a blog where I would chronicle my adventures with doing that with each and every item in the store I could find. Yeah, before we talk about your blog, you have a line in your book that says, foods unfamiliar to me are as much a part of someone else's everyday diet as tomatoes are to my family. Exactly. Yeah. It's so that that fruit, every fruit and vegetable in my book is is normal to someone, right? Like it's yeah. for good reason. So these things are really amazing and they're maybe popular in other cultures, other countries, but even within the United States, other regions. And um, we, once you get over that fact of, once you realize that fact that these things are normal to someone, it kind of removes some of the intimidation in working with these fruits and vegetables. Because maybe at first glance, they look like, oh, well, I've never seen that before. I, I, I wouldn't possibly know what to do with it. But some, someone somewhere is cooking with that. Otherwise, it wouldn't be in the store. And it's probably for a very good reason. That's a really good thing to remember. <laughs> yeah, I think so. So you chronicled your journey cooking with the market's ingredients on your blog called My Berkeley Bowl. Tell us about your blog. So my blog was really just a personal challenge. It's, you know, it was a, or I guess chronicling my own personal challenge. Uh, like I said, once I brought my first exotic or unfamiliar food home and had so much fun developing a recipe for it, I sort of just challenged myself to make my way through all the unfamiliar fruits and vegetables at Berkeley Bowl. And I thought, why don't I, why don't I chronicle this adventure? Because there's bound to be some interesting discoveries and mishaps, which there were, and, um, and it could be some fun. And so I really was just writing for myself. And I was surprised that when I I posted my first entry. It's kind of crazy how the internet works. I don't know how someone found it, but within like a minute, I had a like, and I was kind of like, what? How, how did someone find this? And I, at that point, I didn't even know how to tag my posts in a way that they were searchable. It was, it was really just for fun. And so I was surprised to see it kind of grow and people starting to comment and saying they really liked the concept. And, um, and even on WordPress, you can see in which countries people are reading your blog and 
so really quickly, there are people all over the world reading it. And I don't know if it's maybe because they were excited to see maybe something that they grew up eating being featured on a blog. Um, but it, it was just really neat to see that, that it was being appreciated outside of the Berkeley area. And so I did that for, let's see, I started it in spring of 2015. And um, it was that, that December of the same year that Parallax Press approached me about turning it into a cookbook. And it just seemed like a great idea because it was such a, it's such a finite project with a very specific aim of cooking with unfamiliar fruits and vegetables. And it just really seemed like it would work as a cookbook because part of what I wanted of this is to be, to really shine the spotlight on these fruits and vegetables. And so to have a beautiful, almost coffee table like book with luscious photos by Aaron Scott that really capture how beautiful these fruits and vegetables are is sort of a dream come true for me. In the book, the recipes are organized by type and ingredient. Talk a little bit about that. So I didn't go the traditional route of organizing it by courses because this is really an ingredient-driven book. That's how my, my process was for developing the recipes, and so that's how the cookbook is laid out. So what I mean by that is um, I literally would walk into the store not knowing what I would find that day because it's different every day based on what's in season. And I would pick up something new and bring it home. And after trying that one item a bajillion different ways, I would develop a recipe for it. And so it makes sense to me to organize the book in a way that really honors the fruit or vegetable itself rather than... um, organize it by course, because that's not how I developed the recipes. And in addition, I think it's really, it's kind of a poetic way to think about these things that, you know, in a chapter that if you want to delve into a chapter, you're working with spores and succulents, or you can work with flowers, seeds, and pods. And so I think it's a kind of poetic way to think about these things and to, to treat them as the, the superstars or as the hero of the dish rather than as an ingredient in a breakfast or in a dessert or in a dinner. You have a whole chapter dedicated to stems. What exactly are stems? Stems are basically anything that would be the stalk or the stem of a plant. And so some examples in the book are things like bakha, which is the stem of the elephant ear plant. So it's this really spongy stem that once you cook it, it like a sponge, it literally soaks up the broth. So it's really commonly used in, um, for instance, hot and sour soup type dishes. And I use it in a Spanish style garlic soup. Um, other stems that maybe don't even look like stems are like one that surprises people who are familiar with it is kohlrabi. So kohlrabi is, um, people think it's the bulb of the plant or the tuber but it's actually a stem that's kind of in a round shape. So that one is, is a kind of surprising stem in that chapter. And then I have things like um, white asparagus and uh, lemongrass, which is in a lemongrass coconut ice cream, ranch, cardoons, rhubarb. So all different colors and shapes and sizes that, that when you lay them out, and if you have the book, you can see them laid out in a spread and it's like art, you know, it's these beautiful different shapes and sizes and colors. 
When I go to an ethnic market that has exotic produce, I'm so intimidated by the fruits or vegetables that I can't identify. What advice would you give someone like me who's daunted by the unknown? Have some fun. You know, there's no harm in in making mistakes and there's really, you really can't make mistakes, first of all. But if you take it home and you try using it in a way that you don't like, no harm, no foul. You can just try again. Um, but I think I would say that you would quickly find that the fun of doing it outweighs the fear of the unknown. And, um, and there's also a lot of resources available to you. So one thing I would say is if you're at a market and you're looking at something and considering taking it home, but you're not sure what to do with it, just stick around and wait because someone is bound to come up and reach for it. And it's a great way to, um, interact and to share between cultures because you can ask the person, Hey, what are you doing with that? And that's what I often did at the store is I would sit around and wait until someone reached for the burdock route. And I'd ask them, what do you do with that? Um, also the staff at those places are usually very knowledgeable. And so you can ask them questions and, and if they don't know that someone else might know and they'll go grab them. So that happened a lot at Berkeley bowl, um, where the staff is as diverse as the community and as diverse as the, the offerings at the market. And so um, I was always able to get an answer from them. And then, of course, most of us have iPhones or, or uh, smartphones. And so you can look it up. There's some great resources out there. Um, you can find a lot of them on my blog, my Berkeley Bowl, but also Specialty Produce is a great website that has a lot of information on, um, on specialty produce as well. Yeah, I took the book with me um, to Chinatown because there's a bit of a language barrier, and um, that helped a lot getting the produce that I needed to make some of these recipes. Oh, good. Yeah, I was hoping, I, I'm hoping this book can sort of be a companion because um, because of the nature of the items in it, a lot of times they have a short season or you have to go to a specific market to find them. And so my idea is that you know, you just pack this up and take it there because you don't really know what you're going to find until you get there. So it's better to go see what's there and then maybe look it up. And in the back, there's a key where all of the, the produce is pictured with numbers and you can look up the name of it so that you can easily find it and identify it and make sure you're picking out the right thing. As a food explorer, and I love that title, how did you <laughs> determine how to cook a mysterious fruit or vegetable? Walk us through how you develop these recipes in the book. Generally, once I got the item home, I started a process of what I call playing around with it. So generally, I would um, try it raw to see what it tastes like in its pure form and really identify its flavors. And if it's something that needs to be cooked, I would usually cook it a couple different ways and not necessarily the most, the way that it's most commonly used in that culture. So I wanted to see if there were other ways to bring out its texture and flavor. So I'd, you know, broil it or braise it or roast it, um, grate it. I'd try as many ways as I could to see how I liked it the best. And then once I identified the way in which it, the way which truly honored its texture and its flavor, I was usually um, inspired by that point to incorporate some other flavor. So for instance, something um, like the green papaya, when I tried that on its own, it's really bright and acidic. And I knew I, 
I wanted to have it in a gazpacho because gazpacho should be very bright and acidic. So from there, I fiddled around with what I wanted in the gazpacho. I threw in some avocado for creaminess and some cucumbers and um, lime and ultimately, you know, try it and try it and adjust and adjust until it's to the point where it can be tested. And then I would send it to a huge team of friends and recipe testers. I think there's about 35 of them all over the world. And someone would try it at least three times and we would adjust it from there. So I made a few things out of this cookbook. First uh, was the pickled kumquats on page 197. The flavor was definitely different. I expected the kumquats to be very sweet. Yeah, they, I think a lot of people expect oranges, but they're not yes. as many oranges. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I think um, what I love about pickled kumquats is that they're not sweet. Right? They're not, it's not supposed to be candied or, um, or like a fruit that you would eat on its own. It's really meant to brighten and add acid to, to what you pair it with. So I always have a jar of pickled kumquats in my fridge to throw on salads. It's really great um, to, you know, throw on a frisée salad or just something to make it more beautiful and acidic and tangy. And guests are always surprised because they sort of look like uh, cherry tomatoes, the, the sun gold tomatoes. So when they bite into them and instead they find this citrusy, pickly taste, they're always like, wow, what's that? Um, and then they're also really great on a cheese plate because creamy cheeses like brie or camembert can really benefit from having a little touch of, of brightness and acid. Yeah, they were definitely tangy. I'm, I'm going to try them on a cheese plate. Mm-hmm, yeah. I also made the purple cauliflower quesadilla with curry crema. Try saying that three times fast. <laughs> on page 73. And I cooked the cauliflower till it was super, super soft. And the curry crema was such a nice surprise with it. Oh, I'm so glad you liked it. And yeah, I'm glad you brought up that recipe because actually both the recipes you brought up. Um, one thing that people have told me when I, when I, when I tell them that I'm, that I have this cookbook is they say, Oh, well, I'm not a good cook. I probably couldn't cook anything out of your book. And I'm always surprised by that because just be, just because the ingredients are extraordinary and unique and sometimes look intimidating doesn't mean that the recipes are. Um, I'm a home cook. I'm not a classically trained chef by any means. Me too. And I'm cooking for my family, right? So it's like these are things that I can cook. And um, purple cauliflower quesadillas is about, is about as easy as it gets. <laughs> so. They're things that are, are meant to be accessible and to take the intimidation out of these, these fruits and vegetables. And my 11-year-old loved this quesadilla. It's really a great weeknight fast dinner. Good. I'm so glad that, that your daughter liked it too. He's the son, but that's okay. <laughs> oh, sorry. You're, yeah. <laughs> so I also made the starfruit almond tort on page 198. And I didn't have a springform pan, so it was rough getting it out. But it was really delicious, and I was surprised by how almond-y, almond-y, is that a word? Almond-y mm-hmm. it was. Yeah, that, that, um, this tart was, was inspired by Tarta de Santiago, which is the St. James cake that they serve in Santiago de Compostela, which is the, the end of the pilgrimage that you can do across northern Spain. 
And so when you arrive in this town, there's this sort of cake in every window. Um, and it's, it's an almond meal based cake. And I've always loved it. My mom used to make it when we were growing up and it's really simple to make too. It's kind of a fail proof dessert. And, um, and so when I saw this star fruit, I knew I wanted it to decorate the top of the cake, but rather than just laying it on there raw, I thought it would be really cool to bake it into the cake, sort of like an, a pineapple upside down cake and flip it over. And so this is sort of a, a combination of, of those two things. And I, I think it, it comes out beautifully. And if you serve it to guests, they're going to be like, oh my gosh, how did you cut the fruit in that beautiful shape? And they don't realize that <laughs> it just comes that way. <laughs> yeah, it's really pretty. Last night, I made the broiled pomelo with cinnamon creme fraiche on page 172. Now, what's the difference between a pomelo and a grapefruit? The pomelo is much larger and it has a much thicker rind and pith, whereas grapefruit is is um, obviously smaller and has a thinner rind. I also think pomelo is a bit sweeter. Um, it's sweeter and it has less bitterness. So if if you always wanted to like grapefruit, but you just can't get over the fact that it has that bitter taste, you should try pomelo. And the reason I like it in this preparation is because when you slice it in half and you boil it, um, there's more, the, the pith is bright white and it just looks prettier than grapefruit. It has that nice contrast between um, the pith and the fruit and it kind of caramelizes and burns a little bit on top. So I think it works really well in this recipe. Where can we find you on social media? So my social media, my Twitter handle and my Instagram handle is at my Berkeley Bowl. And um, I have a Facebook page as well that's My Berkeley Bowl. My website, the blog is myberkeleybowl.com. And you can also find me on my personal website, lauramclively.com. With this cookbook as your handy guide, sourcing produce is fun. Thanks, Laura, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thank you so much, Susie, for having me. Follow me on Instagram at Cookery by the Book. Twitter is I am Susie Chase. And download your kitchen mixtapes, music to cook by, on Spotify at Cookery by the Book. And as always, subscribe in Apple Podcasts.